Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Steve Shretsky is a Vancouver realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. He's widely considered a thought leader in the industry with regular appearances on BNN, CBC, CTV, and many others, as well as being a regular contributor to BC's business magazine. Steve's dedication is to analyzing the stats, the financial landscape and policies affecting not just the Vancouver real estate market, but also the bigger national market. And this is just some of the reasons Steve has built a very successful business that sets itself amongst the top 2% of Greater Vancouver Realtors. Steve's a regular speaker at industry events. He's also created and hosts an online video series, which is where I came across him, known as The Saretsky Show. And he authors the popular Saretsky Report, which is literally read by thousands of subscribers. So listen in today, we're going to chat real estate and uh, what's going on in the COVID economy and the journey to being a top performer. Let's get this show started. Steve Saretsky, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. I got to say, I'm really excited to have you on the show, sincerely and honestly. It was the first time we got to meet, but I've been following you for a little while. You got a great YouTube channel going on where you're talking about finance and real estate and what's going on in Vancouver, not just Vancouver, but the overall Canadian market. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Super excited. Now, Steve, just for listeners, why don't you give us a little bit of a background of uh, what you do, and uh, then we're going to get into the journey of it. And I want to talk about a lot of stuff today, especially with what's going on economically, uh, because I know that's a space that you love to hang out in and talk about. And uh, so that's what I want to do today, too. And I want to find out a lot more about you, Steve. Yeah, for sure. So I guess my my day-to-day business where I spend the the vast majority of my time is, is selling residential real estate in Vancouver. So I'm a realtor here. Yeah, I've been running, you know, I think 
are going to be top 1% of realtors in greater Vancouver this year. So I've been keeping busy on that front. So I don't, uh, you know, I like to kind of practice what I preach, so to speak, uh, in terms of having my feet on the ground. But, uh, you know, outside of that, uh, I tend to run my business a little bit differently, as I'm sure you've kind of figured out. I, I like to focus on a lot on the the investment side of it, you know, looking at the macroeconomics, understanding the policymakers and, and what they're doing, and how that, might, how that might impact somebody's, you know, real estate purchasing decisions, or even just overall uh, financial situation. Uh, so I really try to take like a data-driven approach uh, so I've done a lot of research for, you know, a couple of hedge funds, a little bit from the Bank of Canada, you know, a couple other private investment firms in terms of looking at strictly from a data perspective, a little bit of research side. So that's kind of like on, on the side. And then again, my day to day is, is, um, is selling real estate and as well, uh, you know, I do a YouTube channel and a lot of, uh, you know, blogs and newsletters and stuff. Cause I, like I said, I really enjoy the, the educational component of it and just, having dialogues with like-minded individuals such as yourself. Well, you know, it was interesting. I stumbled across you because, you know, as we were talking a little bit off, you know, pre, pre getting started here, you know, we have a whole research team and this, you know, 28 years, really rain has uh, been a leader in understanding research and how it drives markets. But during this whole COVID thing, it was, you know, when we were, especially when we were locked down, it's going like, I'm seeing things and I'm going, doesn't like, am I alone in this or what's going on? So I started literally searching for Canadian focused people that are uh, interested in what's going on economically. And I stumbled across you and I listened to you the first time I went, you know, something, this is, this is cool. He's taking a whole different approach to it and he's actually starting to shine a light on what the truth is. So that's, that's what I really liked about it is that you, you don't really have a bias. I mean, the market's shit or it's good or there's stuff going on. Condos are selling, condos are not selling. So you're not, you are not painting it with this uh, rose-colored brush or looking through rose-colored glasses. You're looking at what's going on economically and talking about just the economics of things. So uh, anybody who gets a chance, you definitely got to listen to Steve on his YouTube channel because it's very good. You do what, once a week and then you do some blogs as well. Yeah, yeah. So I do uh, a weekly YouTube show that comes out every Saturday, Saturday morning. And then uh, I write a weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday morning, just kind of summarizing my thoughts, what I was looking at for the past week, you know, anything that's important to really the Canadian macro landscape or real estate, you know, anything that policymakers are doing, particularly like the Bank of Canada, I think that they are play a huge component in our lives, even though a lot of people don't really know what they do. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of my content model. I like the education focus that you have because you really do talk about what is the who is the Bank of Canada, for example, to their federal government. There's often people think that they're the same thing, and and the differentiation is important for people to understand. Well, I say it's important for understand. You know, who is it important to? You you know, I think on a day to day basis, most Canadians it doesn't matter. But you know, from a real estate investor point of view or a business point of view. Uh, these things really start to matter. And you do a great job of kind of breaking it down and explaining it. Steve, tell me, how did you, you know, you're a realtor, you're a top performing realtor. You're one of the top performers in in Vancouver. And aside from the fact that you play that role, tell me a little bit about how you got into this whole thing around studying the economics of things and then the journey to saying, well, why don't I share that? Now, that's a great value add to clients. That's awesome. Establishes you as an expert. So brilliant. But how does you kind of get into it? Because if you're not wired for that stuff, it's pretty dry. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm, uh, it's funny. It's like I took economics, um, a year of economics in business school and, and I just hated it. 
Um, <laughs> and then, okay, that's funny because because <laughs> here you are and you do a really great job. So yeah, and then uh, and then you know I got into real estate. You know, I think like every other realtor, I was just kind of focused on you know selling and sales, and and then you know the market started to really take off 2015 into 16. And I was like, well, like, you know, 30, 40% price growth, something, you know, what's going on and what's the root cause of this. Mm. And, you know, everybody in the real estate industry just kind of like, well, you know, we're not building enough condos. And that's the reason why, you know, prices are going up 40%. I was like, well, hold on, there's gotta be something to it. Cause like, we didn't just all of a sudden have a sudden shortage and, and everything's going into multiple offers. So there's something a little bit more to it. And then, you know, you kind of start going down this rabbit hole and, and I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, um, I don't know what the term is autodidact in terms of really just always looking for the answers and, and trying, I, I mean, I'm just an avid reader in general. So you just kind of go down this rabbit hole and, and understanding, you know, monetary policy, what the, what the central banks are doing, what their role is. I mean, they literally set the price of money. Um, so that's a pretty important aspect of your life. Um, so understanding that system, then you kind of go down this rabbit hole of, you know, again, like you go back to 2016 in Vancouver and the whole conversation was literally just, supply demand, we're not building enough condos, or it was foreign buyers and foreign speculators. It was never like, there was never any real questions about, you know, monetary policy, interest rates being extremely low, you know, credit, credit growth growing excessively. And, and they can get into capital flows or like, why is the money flowing out of China and, and stuff like that. Right. So I think it's kind of like, once you can put the whole picture together, it starts to help you, you know, create your own framework for understanding asset prices and understanding the investment landscape. When we talk about uh, real estate, of course, as investors, you know, we, we want to say, well, where's real estate going? So we look at what we call the, you know, we talk about the economic fundamentals that drive real estate, you know, GDP growth, job growth, the interest rates are certainly an influencer in that, but, but ultimately we're looking at what are the economic fundamentals that are going to drive a market so that we can see into the future what's happening. Now, I want to get into your background because I, I'm really, really interested in how you got to be doing what you're doing. But let's talk a little bit about what's going on economically, because that's I know listeners are are wanting to hear some perspective for sure about what's going on, not just in Vancouver, but in the market overall. So when you look at, for example, let's talk specifically about Vancouver. And, you know, you made a, a really good point here because there is a lot there was a lot of speculation about nobody really cared. The prices were going up. But to your point, nobody was really talking about why they were going up. What was driving the market? And and so what you did uh, out of your curiosity is I'm understanding is you're digging into the background. You're looking at what is the economy behind this. You know, you talked about monetary policy. You talk about interest rates. You talk about what's what is happening in terms of uh, offshore uh, China specifically is is was primarily you know the the big conversation in Vancouver has been for many many years. So give me your thoughts on where Vancouver was and where it is today. Now I say where it was pre, let's go pre, you know, beginning of the year, pre COVID coming down in March, let's say December, January, were you starting to see anything happening in that market that would indicate to you that there's going to be some challenges in the, you know, especially in the condo market in Vancouver? Uh, well, I mean, I would say for the most part, the market was really, it was quite strong mm. pre COVID. I mean, again, like there's no question like the luxury market was still, you know, kind of struggling, you know, those high-end homes, again, there just hasn't been the same level of foreign investment, 
you know, it really ultimately peaked in 2016, you know, had a little bit of a comeback in 2017. And really since then, through, you know, China's capital controls and through, you know, increased taxation here in Vancouver towards that kind of investment, like it just never has, it hasn't returned to the same level. So that, that segment was always weak. You know, we had, I, I think there was obvious warning signs, which I had you know, been flagging for the last couple of years is that we have been, you know, developers have been building a lot of supply and that supply is starting to complete and has been completing at record levels over the past, you know, six to about six months. And and over the next, you know, 12 months, we're going to again, see record completion. So a lot of that new construction supply was coming on board and it was coming on board. You know, a lot of these people have paid 15, 20% above market value on the premise that when that condo comes to completion, the, pr- the market will have risen enough. So, you know, you'd be in, in the, in the clear, but what's happening is like, condo prices pretty much leveled out. I mean, they ultimately peaked, they ultimately peaked at the beginning of 2018 because there was kind of a last minute rush. There was a last minute sort of push higher uh, when that stress test came in. So everybody says, Oh my gosh, like they're going to tighten credit. I might, if I don't buy today, um, I might not be able to get access to, you know, the kind the type of mortgage that I sure. want. Yep. And so there was kind of that last hurrah where it pushed prices um, to their ultimate peak at the at the start of 2018, and basically since then, you know, they've you know been down down to flat. I mean, they've they've come off a bit. So um, that's kind of where we were. And then obviously since COVID, I think everybody, including CMHC, was was calling for you know a fairly significant decline in in home prices, and and obviously that's failed to materialize so far. One of the things that we and we do our market cycle updates, and we just did a summit uh, recently, and we talked about it. We look at the market cycle, and we see very specifically many areas are are in a slump, what are are going are entering a slump. And the interesting thing about real estate is there's a lag, right? It just doesn't happen. So it, we are all. I think uh, you know. We I, I got to say personally, I was caught off guard by the fact that the housing market kind of turned the way it did. I'm not caught off guard by what's happening with the condo market. I, you know, I was saying that back in June, even that that was going to be part of what was happening. But here, here's the, the, I guess at the end of the day, the, the thing about slumps is when we look at GDP growth, when we look at migration, when we look at job growth, when we look at what's going on economically and what drives real estate, uh, when that starts to turn, there's also a 12 to 18 month lag time. So in in some ways, it does make sense that the market is, uh, there's some parts of the market that make sense in terms of it hasn't come down yet. I look into what's going on in Ontario. I don't know how much you're paying attention to Ontario, but of course, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy what's happening in some areas of Ontario, especially in uh, single family detached because everybody wants more space. They can get more bang for their buck. They're working from home. When you kind of look in your crystal ball, what are you anticipating, let's say, in the next six months to even a year? What do you see going into 221? Yeah, it's funny when you say about Ontario, it's like it's that old saying, right? The cure for high prices is high prices. Mm. You know, the developers, when they see that record profits, you know, prices only going up, obviously they're incentivized to quickly get their shovels in the ground and build, build, build. And, um, and, uh, you know, evidently the market will always, you know, ebb and flow. And so when it slows, you start to realize, oh, wow, maybe we're building a lot and that's starting to come on. And so this condo supply is coming on at a time when the condo market, it's already kind of challenged because I think you look at it and say, what I'm, what I would be more concerned about, like 
is, you know, we talk about maybe trying to look into a crystal ball is that the investor side of the market hasn't really quite come back. So, and investors are typically the ones that are buying condos, you know, to rent out, you know, you're not really buying a million dollar single family house to rent it out for three grand, just doesn't make sense. So you're buying, you know, one bedroom condo to rent it out. The rental market in Vancouver, I mean, Toronto as well, it's been hit pretty hard. I mean, a lot of prospective tenants have lost their jobs or they've moved back home um, in order to save money. And, and also you have a pullback in, in immigration and whatnot. So the, from an investor standpoint, you're looking at it and say, well, the rental market's pretty soft. You know, I need to be incentivized here in order to, to take on the risk. And, and obviously the prospect for higher prices, at least in the short term, doesn't look overly appetizing. So we're not seeing the investors in that aspect uh, playing an active role in the market. And so I think that's, I think we're going to see, you know, potentially a little bit more downwards pressure in the condo market. I am also a little bit conflicted in the fact that when I look at what policymakers are doing, I look at the, so if you exclude like the condo market, I mean, the rest of the market is red hot single sure. family yeah. house prices since, since the pandemic are up 10%. Yeah. Pretty much anywhere you go, which is a bit head turning and townhouses are doing quite well. You know, I'm a little bit concerned because if the policymakers say, well, we're not going to raise interest rates until at least 2023, you know, if we get a vaccine, I think the only way up from like, to me, the labor market only gets better from here. Like, you know, we're, eventually the economy is going to reopen here in the next three to six months. People are going to start slowly getting back up on their feet. And I don't think there's any political desire whatsoever to pull back on a monetary policy and B fiscal policy. I think they're going to put their foot, they're going to leave their foot on the accelerator. And so I think that it has the potential where you could see uh, a significant snapback. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a there's a fundamental challenge that we run into, which is we look at SMEs in Canada, where the you know in terms of monetary policy, where government's going, where they're putting money, they're really supporting those large corporate, publicly traded big stuff, and and that's not doing that's not going to bode well for SMEs that are struggling through this time. You know, and, and depending on where you are in Canada right now, you've got different lockdowns happening or different versions of lockdowns and limitations and all the rest of it. So I think there's, there's some reckoning to be done on, on small businesses, which, you know, really employ over 50% of Canada's population, you know, in, in that small business sector. So I have some concerns around that. I think the, you know, the, the I, I'm finding that the data that we're getting, Stephen, and I don't know where you go on the employment side of it, but I'm really I'm really concerned with the data in that you know they're talking about 10 or 11 percent unemployment. When I look at what is the real uh, unemployment, when you consider mm-hmm. the you know the small uh, entrepreneurs, small business owners that you know don't qualify for unemployment, for example, you know I still I still believe depending on what province you're in that in I'll use Alberta as an example. Uh, you know, that could be, that could be bumping 16, 17%, you know, in, in reality. And, and, and in Alberta, for example, it was so hammered, you know, it was hammered for so long that there's people that were, you know, are finished there, even uh, how they qualify for unemployment. So then you go to the other side of the country, you go into Ontario, they seem to be doing well, but I just see the numbers don't really make sense. I think they're understating the reality of that. That's, that would be one of the things that I'm, observing. I don't know that to be true, but that's my sense of it when I look at that side of it. I don't know what you're picking up on it. Yeah. I think that Stats Canada is, is pretty terrible, to be honest. I mean, it's basically it's basically surveys that they, 
they've put out to get the employment statistics. You know, you look at their numbers and you look at like the ADP payroll numbers and they kind of show conflicting things like ADP will put out a report and then next month they revise their jobs lower by, you know, a million jobs. And it's like, well, so the, the data in Canada is, is not very good. I mean, it's, it's hard. Cause I, I think that, you know, I think we are, it is ultimately like that K-shaped recovery. There's some people that are doing fantastic. They're doing better than they were. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of people that are being left behind. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just creating more, more, it's more creating more inequality, obviously. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to kind of square those two and, and, and figure out exactly where this is all going to go. You know, we have the huge mortgage deferral cliff, which now it looks like people are getting back on their feet, but we don't really know ultimately, yes, you might resume your payments, but are, you know, doesn't mean just because you resume payments that you're out of the woods. I mean, people could certainly be struggling to pay their mortgages, even though they're currently paying them. Uh, so I still believe that the number of foreclosures and delinquencies is going to go up probably quite significantly, but how does that contend with, you know, Canada's money supply M2 money supply going up by 15% this year. So you have basically have the bank of Canada printing excess currency and trying to essentially trying to essentially paper over the financial pain. And so that's, that's the one where I'm trying to figure out like which way, you know, is is the, which way this is going to fall. You know, it's, it's, we, yeah, I I agree. And and it's interesting is, you know, we talk about, you know, every, you know, governments around the world kicking the can down the road and, you know, in that whole continuing to print money. I mean, it's all electronic, it's all digital. They're just doing what they're thing. And then of course, you know, we're talking about digital currencies that are there. Everybody's anticipating that happening and everybody will have a digital wallet. And so when we, we look down the road, it's hard to get a, a, it's hard to paint a rosy picture. Although right now we're kind of in the middle of it. You know, there's a book years ago called, uh, you know, the pig and the Python. And that's what this reminds me of a little bit. You know, it's, it's just this whole thing going down the road right now. And, and we are going to pay a price for it at some point. And it's just a case of timing of when, and what does that mean to us economically? It's, it's just really hard to be optimistic about what's going on when you really look at it and yet we're in it and we're going, okay, well, we're, People are pulling it off. People who are, are working are pulling it off. Uh, I heard you, I think it was uh, on one of your, po- or on your recent YouTube talking about Ottawa. And it's interesting, of course, is that it's hard not to get annoyed with government when, when you know, you see people getting laid off or you see people losing jobs and government jobs are increasing and or nobody's missing a paycheck. And that's that's a little bit frustrating, I think, for the general public overall. Uh, Ottawa is great also in the IT side of it. So Ottawa economically is kind of an interesting anomaly of what's happening in in Canada. So just from working, it's like Victoria. Victoria is the same way. They're really driven by IT and, and government jobs. Yeah, I mean, I think we can talk about that. It's like, you know, you look at Ottawa. I mean, house prices is up 22%. Yeah. That's, that's the home price index. So that's hedonically adjusted. This is not an average price for, you know, maybe larger homes are selling. So, I mean, clearly there's a massive housing boom going on in Ottawa. I think that a lot of government jobs, so they haven't been impacted as much economically or probably at all. They might even be doing better. You know, and then it's just kind of funny because, you know, we talk about policy measures and the Bank of Canada and uh you know their their models right saying that there's no inflation we actually think they think you know inflation is going to be below two percent uh until at least 2023 so we won't raise interest rates until at least then but you know i I think suspect that if you ask anyone in ottawa what inflation is they'll probably tell you it's more than two percent so i think just the notion of having like one 
you know, CPI inflation metric for all of Canada. Like inflation is going to be different in Alberta than it is in Ottawa or, or Vancouver or Toronto. So I just think that uh, these are the kind of nuances that well, it, it, it is, it, but people need to pay attention to it, right? So, you know, we, of course, we live in British Columbia. You're no different than I do. You go to the grocery store, you're knowing that prices are going up. Like it's crazy in some cases, in some categories, how much prices have gone up. Yet I go to Alberta because I've got businesses in Alberta, a business in Alberta still, uh, as does my wife. And, you know, we go to Alberta and when we look at the price, it is like buying stuff on sale in Alberta compared to British Columbia. And that's at their regular price. So when you compare these two provinces and of course, when you get over and when you get into central Canada, you get into Ontario, uh, someplace like Ottawa, then you see once again, a difference in prices. And so to your point, to think 2% inflation or to state a 2% inflation would be, is not a real uh, picture of what's going on economically at all. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you what your thoughts are. Like, I, I this is something like I, you know, studied over the last couple of years as well. It's just kind of like, you know, how banks create credit and obviously how that impacts, you know, property prices and stuff. But what I found interesting is like, I don't know if you, like, I got a rental property in Calgary and like just, just trying to get a mortgage over there was like pulling teeth. It was like, really, guys? Like, this is such a small purchase, particularly in comparison to what I would normally buy in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, you, you had to jump through all these hoops and barrels just to try to get a mortgage there. Um, where, you know, you come to Vancouver and it's like, you know, they just, for appraisals, they don't even go in the house. They just do a drive by outside the building or something. And, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I've got, I've got clients that are, you know, in their twenties getting approved for million dollar mortgages and, and nobody blinks an eye, but you know, when you go to Alberta, it's like, you know, you want to get a mortgage for 400,000. It's like, Oh, hold on a minute. So I, I just find that very interesting to sort of see. And, and I think that it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, you know, the, the, the money, the, the banks just keep allocating, it seems like more and more of their portfolio or credit creation into Vancouver and into Toronto. And then nobody wants to touch Alberta. And so they just, the more they clamp down on credit, you know, in, in these uh, prairie provinces, it's just, that's it's just more detrimental to their economy. A hundred percent. It is, it, it is that. It's interesting that you bring that up because of course, you know, we have lots of members of the rain community that are investing in Alberta and they're, and those who are willing to kind of go through the pain of financing are actually getting some amazing deals. They're, they're buying great cash flowing properties uh, because rents are not off. Rents in some cases have gone up. So, you know, real estate's very regional and it doesn't matter whether you're in Edmonton or Calgary, anywhere in Alberta or BC, it doesn't matter. It's very regional right down to what part of the city are you investing in? You know, where do people want to live? What do they want to do? And uh, to your point, we're, we're looking at a multifamily, uh, multi-unit and we're going to just because of rates, we're going to we're doing CMHC financing on it. And I think huh. I think uh, we're looking. Uh, we've already been at it eight weeks, six weeks, and I think CMHC we're talking twelve weeks before we get the deal done. Yeah, twelve weeks. Yeah, we think we might take. We think we're going to be lucky to get possession of, of that particular prob- property in uh, in April. And uh, we've been working on it since uh, October, early October. And and so, wow. and so it's a new build and there's all sorts of things going on behind the scenes. But CMHC alone is is like 12, 14 weeks right now. And they've got a stack, they got a lineup and oh man, the qualification, it's painful. It really, really is. It tests your patience and you just shake your head. You know, it's just another, and we're, I mean, we're very equipped to do it. And, and we're, 
we've got a great broker. So we're, we're putting it all in and we're actually, like I say, we're not, we've done this before. So we know the system, but it's just amazing how long it takes and the pain that you go through and, and some of the questions and the things that you got to, you got to provide. So it's just an interesting journey to be on for sure. Oh, totally. So tell me a little bit, Steve, you know, so you talk about Vancouver, but you're, you spread out into lower mainland. Do you, what other, what parts of, when we talk about Vancouver for listeners that aren't part, you know, don't come to VC very often, what kind of, what is your territory? What are you doing when you're doing real estate deals? Yeah. So I'm primarily in the city of Vancouver. Like it's where I live. It's where yeah. my office is. Um, obviously like my business is majority all referral based. So, you know, I do get clients reaching out that, you know, again, maybe, maybe they're renting in Vancouver, but you know, they want to buy. And so they're, you know, they're going out to you know North Vancouver or new Westminster, Richmond. I grew up in Richmond, so I still get some stuff there, but so it's kind of like in the inner city core mm-hmm. sort of thing. I mean, I don't really do much like, a, you know, Surrey, Langley, Abbotsford is just too far for me. Yep. But yeah. So, t- so tell me what you, what are you seeing? You're kind of in the trenches. What are you seeing in terms of what's going on in the city of Vancouver? Now we know the condo market's off. Uh, are you primarily selling homes? Are you seeing investors come in still? What's kind of your feel for what's going on in that market? Yeah, basically, like the single family stuff is red hot. I mean, anything like I've been doing quite a bit, like, you know, single family in East Vancouver this year. Um, that's all, everything's going multiple offers, subject free, people doing pre inspections. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to have five, six offers on a house. Um, and, you know, maybe four of those will be subject free. So that it's extremely competitive. Again, prices are up probably to at least 10% since the pandemic. And then you go to, you know, there's the flip side of that, which is the, probably the worst market, in my opinion, the worst market in the lower mainland is downtown Vancouver. So there seems to be a massive hollowing out of the downtown core. Obviously, people not having to go to work anymore. So it's like, well, and, and restaurants and bars kind of, you know, basically being closed is that there's not really a whole lot of, you know, desire or lucrativeness about being downtown right now. So investors are pulling out. We're seeing more of them sell, you know, people that are maybe Airbnb, those units are coming onto the market. Uh, rents are, rents are off 10% at least. Um, so that's a market that's been hit really hard. And, and same thing with the insurance premiums too. Like, you know, we're seeing an insurance cost for these high rises, downtown concrete buildings going up by, you know, anywhere from 80% to 200%. And so that's causing an increase in the strata fees. And so just right now, I think from an investment standpoint, people are extremely gun shy about downtown. So I would argue from a contrarian play that might be an opportunity. I mean, again, there could easily well be some more downside, but I think that people are really selling off this whole notion that like, you're never going to go back to the office. What are you, uh, what are you seeing for, uh, in terms of the single family that you're selling, the, the detached that you're selling and, and people looking for, are there lots of first time home buyers in there? Or are there lots of people coming out of that condo market and going, I need the space. What are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, it's usually people, it's mostly all people that have like some sort of equity built into the market already. Like, you know, again, you look at like K-shape recovery, but like people that are buying single family houses in East Vancouver with a starting price of 1.6 million or 1.5, whatever you want to call it. I mean, those people, like generally speaking, are fairly well established in their careers. You need to have a fairly high income and you need to probably have some sort of equity built into the market in terms of like, hey, maybe you had a, maybe you've owned a one bedroom condo for the last five, six years and you know, you've made some money on that. And and so that's really what we're seeing. We're not really seeing any offshore foreign investment. It's basically just local families looking for more size, more space. And everybody seems to be wanting to do it at the same time. 
and there's really just no inventory right now. I think we're like, if you're looking for a house in Vancouver, you know, sub $2 million, I think there's like two months of supply for sale. Wow. What about immigration? Now we talk about immigration, you know, Trudeau put out some pretty optimistic numbers. He's going to, you know, next year he's talking 400,000, you know, uh, what's your, what's your kind of view of that? What are you seeing? Immigration's of course really slowed down in 2020, but what are you seeing in the future based on kind of a word on the street or what your feel is? Yeah. I mean, I think that they want to ramp it up. Um, but in reality, it's like, these programs are kind of pro-cyclical in the fact that, you know, if you have a really soft, weak labor market, people don't come here. Like you need, you need to, you need to provide them with jobs. And so I think when your own, you know, your existing labor force, which we talked about earlier, let's say the unemployment rates at, you know, eight, nine, 10%, but you know, maybe realistically it's higher than that. Um, that's certainly up for debate, but like, if you have this many people out of work and there's so much slack in the, in the labor market, like funneling in, you know, more people, where, where are they, where are they going to go? Where are they going to work? So, um, and, and Ray Dalio, you know, one of the probably greatest hedge fund managers of our time, he, he's written a, a large piece about this, about the cyclicality of population and immigration. Like what we saw in, you know, in Spain's housing bus back in, you know, 2010, 2011, that, uh, you know, when, when, when the economy goes into a contraction, like people, people leave. So, you know, you can think about it here in Vancouver, BC, like one of the, one of the things that is highly cyclical is construction, right? So once developers start pulling back because the economy is crappy and condo prices are coming down, once developers start pulling back on new housing starts, well, all of a sudden, like, oh, okay, well, let's lay off this trades guy. Let's lay off the, you know, these contractors. We don't need them. And so they, you know, a lot of them end up going back to, to where they came from ultimately. So I think that even though that the immigration targets are revised higher, I don't think they're going to hit them. Yeah. I don't think they're going to be close. I think, you know, there's to your point, I mean, there's got to be jobs for people to come to number one, number two, uh, this is a global issue, right? And different countries are just simply not allowing people out of the country. And, you know, there, there's different rules and different lockdowns, different things are happening around the world. So first off, you got to be able to get out of your country. And secondly, you need to be able to, you know, say, okay, well, I've got a likelihood of getting a job when I get there or I have a job there. You know, immigration often and historically, the majority of immigration is as much as we've got skilled workers that come into Canada, there's lots of those service level jobs that come into Canada, you know, whether it be looking after hotels or retail or whatever that might be. And, you know, that world shut down. I mean, there's just not anything going there. So the reason I, I, I shine a light on it, because those are the kind of the buttons for me when I'm looking, you know, we, we have to use some critical thinking as real estate investors and, and in the world that we're supporting people and making decisions, there's some critical thinking that has to come into play. If you don't look behind the scenes of what's happening with, you know, a, a random number that uh, our, our federal government puts up, or whoever does, by the way, um, we won't even get into politics. I mean, I certainly have my view of, of the political landscape, but I, I think right now is, you know, we have to really dig into what are the numbers. And and I, I remember, you know, when we had uh, Dr. Sherry Cooper on, who's, I mean, she's a, a very, very, you know, longtime economist. And even she was saying the lag time in numbers is, is really uncharacteristic of what's happening. And to me, that's kind of, I, you know, I always say, you know, that's intentional and what's the advantage of doing it. But I think it, it is just not, 
people overall in terms of investors uh, have to, and business owners, um, even home buyers. You know, I say with home buyers as well, you have to be a little bit careful uh, and the decisions you're making, why you're buying it, where you're buying it, all of those kinds of things that are going on. So we look at what's happening economically and, you know, pandemic aside, I mean, these things have happened at some scale in the past. There is history. There is some history, not on a global scale. I mean, you go back far enough, uh, there is, but you know, you have to look to your point, you talk about Spain as an example. And uh, so we do have some, we have some idea of what could, what we could be in a store for. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I always find it interesting because like, again, like, you know, you go back, I go back to like the euphoric period of 2016 and 2017 for the condo market. Like everybody just extrapolating like expectations that like, prices will keep rising, that rents, rents, you know, rising 10% a year, that, that, that must continue infinitely. Not, not realizing that like, you know, go back and look at history is like basically every eight to 10 years, there's some sort of crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be, you know, the stock market crashing. It could be, you know, global financial crisis. It could be, you know, now we have a pandemic. It's like, it's just kind of inedible that every eight to 10 years, there's kind of a road bump. There, uh, it's, it's true. It's true. And that's kind of, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that happens. It's in, in the disconnect with what's happening in stock market right now with equities. I mean, it's just, this goes back to, we've never had this scenario before. That's the challenge is like, you look at it and you go, how long can they continue to print money? Like, how long can this go on? Can it go on forever? When does the music stop? You know, and who's going to have the last chair? It's like, you know, from a perspective, from our perspective, it's always, you know, we look at it and go, okay, there's got to be, uh, you know, some real caution, be very, you know, be very cautious, whether you're a first time home buyer, uh, particularly if you're a first time home buyer, being really aware of what you're buying, why you're buying it. And then certainly on the investment side of it, it's so regional right now, you have to be very, very cautious. We're actually not, you know, we're saying slow right down. There's, there's stuff coming, be patient money is going to win this game. And, uh, but the FOMO kicks in for a lot of people, you know, that whole fear of missing out, the market's going to go to your point, the market's going to go up forever. You know, this is crazy. It will never go down. Well, yeah, no, that's, that's not the case. Well, I mean, like the biggest thing for me, I, I always was kind of scratching my head when, when they brought in the stress test at the end of 2017 and people were going, Oh my God, I better get in now. Not realizing that like when you restrict how much people can borrow, like that's going to naturally be reflected in the prices. Yeah. It's crazy. So I don't know. Again, I think, yeah, it's like you said, right. It's critical thinking. And that's why, like, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing. And obviously it's, you know, partially why I do the YouTube channel and stuff. It's just kind of have, have that dialogue and just explain to people kind of like what these things mean. And then ultimately, again, we can't predict, but certainly you can try to make an educated decision. Well, what we know is this, is that in any crisis, there's opportunity. It's up to us as entrepreneurs, as business owners, to really pivot, to see and look at what the gaps are in the market. Where do we support people? You know, Rain, from our point of view, we're always going to be education. We're all going to be research and being a source for investors and supporting people in that regard. So we really do get into these conversations. We don't stop talking about this shit. You know, it's like an ongoing conversation trying to crack the code of what's going on because a lot of it just doesn't make sense and there's no precedent set in terms of what uh, what the central banks are doing. And because it's a global uh, global issue, now we got partial shutdowns and lockdowns and some businesses are going, some aren't. You know, they've locked down support. I mean, really? It's the frustration that I think most people, especially, you know, you look at small retail, you look at gyms and they're going, you know, space them out. No, we can't. You shut down. 
yet have you seen the lineups at Costco, Walmart? I mean, that's the whole thing is that, you know, we're crowding people into these things called box stores, yet that works and a, a church doesn't. You know, it's like none of that part of it makes sense. And what I'm really kind of, uh, I'm happy about one thing, and it's weird to be happy about it. But if if you argued with the federal government, if you disagreed with anything the federal government was doing, you're a conspiracy theorist, you know? And I've always said that, you know, I've always said that all conspiracies start as a theory. Mm-hmm. Somebody goes, there's something fishy about this, right? And they start digging into it. General public, of course, believes mainstream media, which is just so, so tiresome. I don't watch mainstream. I turn mm-hmm. it on maybe for 20 minutes once a week just to see what's going on. But it's the same. The narrative, it's all scripted. It's all them all saying the same. Those are frustrating parts. Now, it's not to make, it is actually to make them wrong. The truth is it's all bullshit. You know, you have to dig deeper. You have to look at what's behind the curtain in that regard. Now, what I'm what I'm kind oh, of, I, you, yeah, sorry, I, go ahead. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think we were on the, we're on the same page here. It's just, uh, you know, I think, the, yeah, it's frustrating because I think like, I agree with you, there's a little bit of double, double standards going on right now. And the fact that is if you question the narrative, if you question the mainstream narrative, you're automatically considered some sort of conspiracy theorist or you're shut down as a person that, you know, doesn't care, doesn't care about human lives. But again, obviously, you don't, you know, no, nobody's asking what are the, you know, what's the, what's the health, what are the health ramifications, right? Of like, okay, well, if you shut down everybody's gym and you make them sit at home, like obviously, you know, you get into mental health issues, you know, drug abuse. I mean, the, obviously I think I was at uh, one of my, my good buddy, Ben Rabideau, he's a independent researcher here in Canada, but I think he was putting out some, some stat that like something like 30% of the growth in retail sales in the, in September was due to the cannabis and, and, and alcohol. Yeah. So totally. the, the sales are just like ripping through the roof. Right. And that's just basically people coping, I think mentally and psychologically with, with what's happening. Right. A hundred percent. And they also skew the numbers, right? They say they give a general retail, but okay, well let's start. What, what, what retail are you talking about exactly? Right. Because I own retail businesses in Alberta. Uh, and, and so I, 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 I understand those numbers, but you know, to your point, you know, alcohol and drug abuse has spiked. Uh, suicides have spiked. Home domestic uh, domestic violence has spiked. You know, child abuse has actually spiked. None of those numbers are being talked about, which really pisses me off. But it's not that you can't find them. People don't think to look for them, or they're not going to take the time to look for them. You know, the what I go back to, what I was really happy about is, you know, the the whole uh, Great Reset. You know, the first time I heard about the Great Reset was in two thousand and three. But that was that was the first time I heard about it, and and I and I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. It was somebody saying, you know, you got to pay attention to this, and I'm going conspiracy. You know, somebody wants to be off the grid, and you know, so I wasn't really paying attention. Well, here it is, you know, and and all these conspiracy theorists that have been talking about this shit for ten years, all of a sudden they're the the gurus about what's going on, and they're turning out to be pretty right in most cases. It was really great when Trudeau sat in front of the UN and talked about the Great Reset. I went brilliant. And uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta, I, w- I posted something where he actually sat and said, I got that book from Kraus and, you know, like I, I didn't read it, but it's all about the Great Reset. And it just makes, you know, like he, he kind of shut it down. The point is this, is this is really the reality of it, is that finally it's front facing. And now here's, here's what's really happening. We've got a government and governments, you know, let, doesn't matter, left, right, I don't care, it doesn't matter, 
they can't agree on anything. So this whole thing is really the, what we're shining a light on is nobody knows what the hell they're doing. And so they're busy, you know, making everybody else wrong. And there's, you know, you've got as many thousands of doctors saying it's bullshit as you've got a doctor saying it's a problem. They're, they're talking about cases, but they're not talking about why, what, who cares about cases really? Well, they don't want to overwhelm the hospital. Well, give me a number. Give me, what are the benchmarks for the hospital? Where are we in that benchmark? You know, is ICU being overcrowded? Like we, there's 400 beds there. Are they at 350? Are they at 210? Are they at 60? You know, so these are the things that are a little bit, it lends itself to credibility, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's self-serving and I talk about it all the time. It's politics, not policy. Really, how can you justify it when you're not actually sharing the data that is meaningful? Cases, to be honest with you, are, are, are they don't mean anything. And even COVID deaths, we know that, you know, a direct, somebody directly passing from COVID is, is, is actually quite rare. There's always a second, third, fourth underlying condition. And age is an issue. So protect that, that group. You know, my mom's 92. She's, you know, I, I would, def- my mom is like kind of going, ah, shit, you know, I'm 92. You know, let me get out of this place, right? I don't care. And, and, and I know that's just my mom's attitude. But, you know, at the end of the day, she's in an extended care and they're locked down. I haven't seen my mom for months, months, you know, talk to her. And she's, and she's just really a very, very young 92-year-old. But my point is, all of these things are happening. And the reason that I'm happy it's starting to show up that way, because actually people will, can be heard. People can actually come out and start talking about it without being shot down because we we're seeing some leaders start to talk about it. Yeah. I think it's just like, I could, again, kind of just critical thinking. I think it's just the ability to sort of think for yourself and just to sort of, you know, question, I don't know. I, I'm always been, I've always questioned like everything, like, you know, the things that we learn, the things that the media says or whatever, right? I mean, whatever your stance is on, on, on the pandemic and, and the lockdowns and what's, what's right or what's wrong. I think like everybody's still trying to figure that out, but I think it's important to have like a dialogue regardless. And obviously I think like there seems to be one narrative that's obviously painted in, in the media and that is, uh, you know, kind of what you talked about, but so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenging time, but I think that's kind of the, the game of politics is just like everybody's trying to, you know, cover their own ass. And, and, you know, I can get into a bunch of examples that I find interesting. Like I'm, you know, we're, I'm playing like a beer league hockey and it's like, well, okay, you know, you can come play, but you know, when, so we play normal hockey, but then when we do like a face off, everybody has to stand six feet apart for the face off. <laughs> but it's like, but then what happens when the game resumes and there's a loose puck in front of the net and, you know, five guys are jamming away, breathing on each other. So I, again, that, that's just mostly like the politics of, you know, the league trying to look like they're doing the right thing or of abiding course. by. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it's, again, it's kind of a bit of a double standard, but anyways, it's neither here nor there. I think there's a, yeah, yeah I mean, there's the frustration that lives in it for everybody, you know, and, and, you know, you talk about hockey and what's going on in that space and, and in sports in general, to be honest with you, I think you're you're having bureaucrats make decisions about things that they've never played the game of hockey. You know, there's some some page in a book that they say, okay, well, given this, we got to do that, but they actually don't have a relatedness to what the game's all about and or how it can be played and and what does it really mean. You know, so that's part of the conversation. It's like business owners. You know, people the people who want to lock down 
business say, okay, we got to shut down again. We got to protect ourselves. You know, those individuals are the ones that are working from home and have a job. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there is no consequence to them for shutting down because of whatever role they're playing, whatever job they've got, you know, start talking to the, the business owners as an example, um, that have to lay off 25 or 30 staff and ask them what their thoughts are on that. They're at the effect of that. Ask the 30 people that are going to get laid off about shutting down that business. And so it's, it's okay to live in this idealistic world of shut it down and, you know, we'll really, we'll really flatten the curve. Well, until when, you know, there's nothing going on until a vaccine that we don't know if it's going to work and not everybody's going to take the vaccine unless you force them to, well, that's a whole different conversation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the issues that we're dealing with. So don't know where to go with that. It's a good data. No, but I mean, good I think data kind of, yeah, no, I think it dials back ultimately to questioning sort of the narrative. And, and, and again, for, for me personally, like, obviously I try to focus on like, you know, real estate and, and personal finance in terms of like how that might relate to the average person. It's like, well, I always find it interesting that like in this whole dialogue of, you know, rampant house price appreciation in Canada, you know, particularly again in Vancouver, 2015 to 2017, how come like not, 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 not one person ever asked, you know, well, hold on. What about the central banks? We, why are, why are, why are rates still at, you know, 1% mm-hmm. when they were, mm-hmm. uh, nobody ever asked like, you know, so again, like house prices are going up, you know, right now, I mean, n- nationally, I think they're up what 11% year over year in, in, in October. Um, so nobody ever asked, well, hold on a second. Like maybe we overcompensated on the stimulus measures or, you know, maybe the bank of Canada owning 35% of the bond market. Like maybe that's playing a role in increasing unaffordability. Again, I think it's, but you, you'll never hear that in the mainstream media. Like there's, I mean, they don't even think they know what a central bank is or they prefer not to talk about it. So I don't know. It's just, it's just stuff like that. It's just kind of looking out for yourself and, understanding like the rules of the game and the goalposts are always moving. They're always moving, aren't they? And we have to pay attention. So, you know, I always say leaders got to lead and, you know, I'll keep leading the charge in terms of doing the research that we do. And I know you'll do the same on your side of it. And all we can do is give information. I mean, I, you know, I don't profit from anybody buying real estate. So I, it's easy for me to give education and, and give guidance because I don't have a bias. You know, I don't make any money. Having said that, you know, on your side of it, you know, just how you're built, you're, you know, you built your business off of referrals and, and you're an educated realtor. I mean, you are, that's why you're, you know, you're in the top 1% of realtors in terms of your performance because you do things that not you know, most, most realtors don't do right. And, and like I say, leaders got to lead. And, and I think that's where we step up and, and do that. And I, and I, I know we've gone on in this particular conversation for a while, but, and you know, to, there's no conclusion to it. <laughs> you know, there really isn't because it's ongoing. We don't know what the hell's going to, what's going to happen. Uh, the frustration of, of government, not knowing what they're doing, the, 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 discussion and the fights between political parties get tiresome mainstream media uh, media gets ti- uh, tiresome because they're trying to sell uh, headlines they're you know they're everything's about fear based they're driving that whole fear based conversation all of the time it gets exhausting listening to it because of how it affects people and it affects and skews and there's never been a time i don't think and uh, and i'm much older than you are but there's never been a time that i can think of that Canada has been more divided. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got people that are 
way left, others that are way right. You've got people that believe that this is a, a an absolute lockdown the world and others that are going, what are you kidding me? COVID's not even real. You know, it's it's a pandemic. It's a plandemic. It's a conspiracy theory. It's, you know, they, there's it's divided in so many, like so clearly the lines, families are fighting, friends are fighting. I mean, it's it's very, very interesting what this has created. Some would argue that's the intention. That's what the government's wanted to do all along. You know, I, I heard, you know, somebody talking to me the other day. They want you in your house with as few people as possible so you can't have these kinds of conversations and start causing, you know, things and, you know, discourse with what the government's doing. And I'm going, holy cow, that gets so dark, so deep and such a rabbit hole to go down, right? So it is an interesting time in that regard, Steve. Yeah, I think the answer is usually somewhere in the middle. <laughs> It'll be somewhere in the middle, won't it? Won't it? Yes. So, okay, so let's quit. I, I, the, I, I realize I just bummed myself out talking about the economy. It's just like, ugh, this is so, so tough. Tell me about Steve. Now, you're a realtor. How long have you been doing this again? Uh, six years. Six years. And and so you've got a real entrepreneurial spirit about you. And, I mean, you're, you're really going above and beyond. You know, what was your background? What led you on this path? I mean, to be a 1% in a very competitive market, uh, such as Vancouver, where, you know, numbers get really big, really fast. Um, what was kind of what led you to this? Were your parents entrepreneurial? I was interested in, in you know, when you look at the seemingly ordinary that achieve extraordinary, which you, you definitely are in that park. How did you get there? You know, were your parents entrepreneurial? What kind of led you down this path, Steve? I don't know. I've always been interested in business, like starting my own business. I think even when I was back in you know, grade nine and 10, I was, you know, going on eBay, selling stuff, you know, buying, you know, jerseys and overseas and selling them. And, and, uh, so yeah, I've always, I've always kind of had like these small quasi little businesses and I've always been, you know, trying to make money for myself. I always just found that like that fascination around it. Uh, I've always liked real estate. I think one of the books I'm sure for everybody that changed their lives, like rich dad, poor dad, that was always like, a big one of that, you know, kind of helped frame my mindset in terms of, you know, looking out for yourself, right? I don't, I don't want to depend on other people or I don't want to depend on the government. And, you know, I just think that I want to be more like in control of my life. And so I've always been, been focused on that aspect of. But when you were in school, I mean, where did you, where, what drove you to say, well, I, you know, I'm going to, I mean, listen, not everybody goes on eBay and starts selling shit. You know, it's like, where did, where did that come from? Like, that's what I'm saying. Where did you get, was like, where did you, what, some of you read? What, how did you, how did you? I don't know. I feel like, I almost feel like it's a bit of a DNA thing. Yeah. But it's hard to say. Like, you just have that itch for like, you know, you just like, you're hungry to like learn and, and like, I mean, call it what it is, like make money. Like, you're always like, oh, like, you know, I want to, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, well, I want to buy the new Xbox. And it's like, well, how do I do that? Like, well, maybe I can, you know, buy some stuff and resell it. And, and, and so it's like, you know, you're always trying to think creatively. I was never, I was always a terrible employee. Um, I always <laughs> I just, hate, I just hated working for, for other people. And obviously I didn't do that for very long, but you know, even growing up as a kid, I was just a little bit, I was always like a little bit like defiant. Like I don't like people telling me what to do. Um, so I didn't really ever think I could really have a boss. And so, yeah, again, I think that's partially a little bit DNA driven. Yeah. And, and so back to, so was your dad in that space? Was your mom in that space? Did, what uh, you... No, yeah, dad's, dad's an airline pilot. And then uh, mom's, uh, well, mom is a realtor, but 
so I guess that maybe helps drive me in, but I mean, I, she helped me out for maybe six months and then I went out on my own. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to get like a little bit of a feeler. I mean, I don't know. I always looked around though too and said like, I did like real estate and you know, it seemed like every time you look, uh, as a kid, anyways, you look at all the realtors and they're all driving BMWs. Like, well, they must be doing all right. <laughs> so, but then, but then you start to realize that's probably the worst barometer of wealth is looking at someone's car. <laughs> Isn't that the truth, right? Yeah, I learned that pretty quick. But even in the short time that, because you haven't been, a, I mean, a realtor, you know, I mean, to do what you're doing in a short period of time. So you're, I mean, you're obviously a hustler. So you're like you're out working your ass off to make all this stuff happen. Now, did yeah. you did you have some great mentors? Did you naturally uh, know that you wanted to get a mentor? How did you how did you kind of accelerate? And uh, aside from head down and just grind away, I mean, what was what was some of the what was some of the tactics that you used? Well, I think like from like a business perspective, like who influenced me the most? Uh, I was a huge follower of Gary Vaynerchuk. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people know who that is. So uh, I've read all his books, watched hours and hours of his YouTube videos. I think I've been to three or four of his keynotes, you know, met him a couple of times. So yeah, he was like a huge driver. Cause like, I always looked at like the way that he kind of built his business, which is basically he built it on like content and educating people. And that was kind of like always my thing. Like I'm not, I, I hate, I can't cold call people. I can't go knock on doors and, and ask for business. Like for me, it was always like, I enjoy like putting out a YouTube channel and conversing with people and, and meeting like, like minded individuals like yourself. Like, I don't think that happens without putting out like interesting content. And so that for me was always how I wanted to build my business. And then it's really just kind of doing that consistently. I think the content model is, is like, I mean, like for, for me, you know, the YouTube videos, like I'm literally like when I'm sleeping at night, you know, those views that like someone, I mean, I'm still every night I go to bed, I'm maybe getting, you know, a hundred views a night. And so that, that, that's like constantly working for me while I'm sleeping, as opposed to like, you know, if you're door knocking, you know, the minute that you stop door knocking, like it kind of dries up. So that was kind of my view. I mean, obviously you still have to be, yes, I think you still have to have something interesting to say to really hit. Like I know like a lot of realtors that, you know, they try to do the videos and, and, and all that. And, and good for them, obviously you got to try, but I think a lot of it just becomes like generic. And so I think you have to have something a little bit different to say too. What's interesting about this is that, you know, I know a lot of realtors. I mean, I've, you know, I've know a lot of them and, and very, and I know a lot of really good ones, by the way. And, you know, to be anytime you're in that space and you're in that, you know, top one, 2%, I mean, those are really big accomplishments, especially, you know, when you look at the time that you've been in the space and, you know, so Gary Vaynerchuk, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan and, and he's a cool cat and, and I like the way he does some of the stuff that he does. I mean, he's got a, a really cool perspective on business overall and really supports young entrepreneurs. So I, I can't not be a fan of him because I love I, I love working with young entrepreneurs of myself. Uh, I, I'm too old to work with young guys, I think sometimes, but cause I'm just not, I'm just not cool anymore. But, um, the, so when you, when you're doing what you're doing in that space, you know, you take Gary's stuff because I'm in the business of education, right? So Rain's done, you know, a hundred, over 150,000 people have been through our programs. We've been doing this 28 years. I've seen investors come in and I mean, just kill it, build amazing portfolios, follow the guidance, follow, 
the education, understand the research, do the math, do the work. And I mean, people with full-time jobs that have built portfolios of, you know, multiple, multiple doors. I mean, I don't, we don't need to talk about a hundred. Those days are probably gone, but certainly, uh, you know, guys that have built uh, portfolios, 10, 15, 25 doors, that's still ongoing. And they, they work their asses off to do that. Here's, here's the question for you. It's one thing to get that information. You know, and I always, you know, one of my favorite quotes is if information was the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs, right? So mm-hmm. what is it, what is it about you in terms of your view of the world that really drove you? Are you connected to what it was that drove you? I mean, you obviously took action. Yeah. You've applied the stuff. Was it, was it really, you know, money was one of your highest values? Was customer service one of your highest values? What, what, I'm a, a real values that's that's kind of my 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 shtick, you know. What what what? Where are our values? That's what I always want to assess. So, what was it for you? I I played hockey growing up, and then I got it started playing fairly competitively in my in my teens. But I was a little bit of a, like a late late to the stages. So I was just kind of like smaller growing up and stuff. Anyways, like long story short is, I started to realize that like you know, I might not be, let's just say I'm not going to be the best hockey player, but like the one component that I can't control is like my work ethic. Like I'll work harder than anybody. And so that at least I can say like, Hey, you know, I didn't, I didn't make it maybe to the NHL, but I I worked my hardest to try to get there. Or, you know, I worked my hardest to get to X, you know, performance. And so that was kind of like always something I did. the only component, like I always thought of like, there's, if I don't put in this work, you know, if I don't go to the gym and lift these weights, if I don't go and shoot these pucks in the backyard, like somebody else probably is right now. So that's the one variable that I can can control. I might not be able to control the scouts that, you know, who they decide to pick maybe for political reasons or not, but what I can't control is my workout, uh, workout, work ethic. And that's kind of what I did when I came into real estate too, is just like, listen, I'm going to, you know, work seven days a week here. I'm going to read all these books. I'm going to go to all these keynotes, uh, and I'm going to apply the work and we'll, we'll see what happens. Like, you know, if at least if I can put a valiant effort forward and say, I did my best then we'll see the, we'll see where the chips fall. So that was kind of always like my, my mindset behind it. To grind it out like you have, obviously. And you're working your ass off and, and, and that's always interesting. You know, people ask me often, like, you know, I remember a question I got years ago, which was somebody from the audience came in and said, geez, Patrick, you know, I just see you doing this and you're doing that. How many hours a week do you work? And I, it actually stopped me because I went, I've, I've never actually asked myself that question. I don't think about that. It's just what I do. You know, mm-hmm. so it isn't really, I mean, it's work, but it's not really work. And I know when I need to, you know, save some energy and slow down and check out and do all those kinds of things. For you, what do you love about what you do? What keeps you going? Like, because if it's just work and it's just a paycheck or it's just a commission check at the end of the day, that gets tired really fast. I mean, you got to, you got to dig what you do in order to do what you've, what you're doing and to have achieved what you have achieved. So what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? I think it's just like, kind of like, it's kind of like, it's like a game. It's kind of like fun to try to build your own like little empire of like, you know, you're just constantly trying to improve and, and, you know, constantly trying to build like my, my own personal brand and, and just sort of see what it morphs into. Right. I mean, I don't know, like right now I'm selling real estate and that's going great, but you know, maybe that'll, maybe that, maybe that path will, will change in five years. Maybe I'll get bored of it and it'll morph into different business opportunities 
Um, so it's like, you're always, I don't know. It's just, I think it's like, what kind of drives me is like the growth aspect that you're always kind of growing and you're always setting new goals. And, and so for, to me, it's kind of like that. The, it's really the game of, of trying to build like your own empire that is kind of self-motivating. That's cool. So your relationship guy, obviously, I mean, you're playing hockey, you're doing real estate. I mean, you're, you're, you must enjoy building relationships, meeting people, supporting people. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've always been like a, I feel like I've been a fairly personable person. Like, I think that's the thing is again, if I go back to like hockey roots, it's like when you're on a team of, you know, 20 guys, like there's a lot of different personalities on there and, uh, you know, you want to be a good teammate you want to be a good friend. And so it's like, you're going to have to know which bush, which buttons you can push with certain people. And, and, uh, so I think that's kind of naturally applied into like real estate sales is that like, it's all just like, you know, communicating with people, understanding their, their pain points, understanding like their, their behaviors. You know, some people are extremely cautious in life just cause that's the way that they're growing up. Some people, you know, so some people got a handhold through a transaction and some people just want to do it all themselves. And you just kind of like, you know, you just kind of let them do their thing. So it's kind of just reading the room. Now, only because you're talking hockey a little bit and because it's hanging above you, uh, you got a, a Sackick jersey hanging behind you. Now, did you just buy that at a ridiculously expensive fundraiser or is Sackick one of your fans? Or if you're one of his fans, I should say. He could be uh, one of your fans. Yeah, yeah, he's one of my fans, <laughs> I wish. Yeah, I know I bought that jersey like a long time ago and then I actually, he, he was using the, he had the same trainer for me, a uh, workout trainer for one year. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I met him after like one of his workout sessions. I was, I think I was finishing up my workout and then he was coming in and I knew he was coming in that day. So I had my Jersey on me. <laughs> uh, good job. Good job. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I made sure he, that he signed it. So yeah, he was my favorite player growing up. I'm still an avalanche fan. Yeah. 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 No, Joe's very, very good. Cool. So when you look at the, the kind of the path and the journey, what you've got going on, kind of the plans for the future, given what's happening with COVID, are you, and gyms are closed. Do you have, what's, what's kind of like some of your, I don't know, we'll call it your day-to-day personal routine kind of stuff. Do you, are you, you're, you're playing hockey. Are you yeah. working out or on it? And you're not a big guy, at least. <laughs> yeah. You no, were, no, you no, were no. a Ford. You were like, you were what you played center in hockey. What did you do? Uh, yeah, I was a winger. Oh, you're a winger. There you go. Okay. So what do you do? What's your, what's kind of, how do you look after yourself? Because you can't be working there. You're working seven days a week. Got it. But what do you what are you doing to look after yourself? Are you uh, is it physical? Are you doing what are you doing mentally? Are you a meditate guy? What do you do? What do you do to look after yeah, yourself? Yeah, I mean, uh, pre COVID, I used to go to the gym in the mornings, you know, six thirty a.m. kind of thing. Yeah, probably four times a week. I could just get the blood flowing too. It kind of wakes me up, um, and and I think that was a good routine uh, that I had going for a while. And then basically, since since COVID, I ended up shutting down the gym membership and I actually have a Peloton. So how do you like your Peloton? Now I've, I've, I don't know if you know, Terry Peranich, a very successful realtor over the years in Edmonton, but he was telling about his Peloton. He's the best thing he ever bought. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's still not the same in terms of like, you know, you're not getting the upper body workout, but it's a good sweat. Like I just get up in the morning and like get the blood pump and it wakes you up. And mm-hmm. then you just feel like, I just feel like I have way more energy throughout the day. Yeah. Like if I don't, if I don't jump on that thing in the morning, uh, I'll notice like, you know, 2 PM, 3 PM comes around. I'm kind of tired. Like, I don't know. It's just, I just find that, 
yeah, it's been a nice component for me. So I usually, I usually jump on that. I'll get a good sweat. And then I usually spend like a good hour in the morning before I start my day. Just, just reading, just, you know, reading, you know, a lot on maybe Twitter and, and, you know, I got, I mean, I read a lot of books too. So just, just kind of like mentally and physically sort of priming myself. I mean, you're obviously to, to do some of the look in the camera and talk to what's going on economically or talking to monetary policy that takes, you know, to do a 20 minute or 15 minute or half an hour monologue, which you do, um, you're putting a lot of time and energy into it. Is that a, a morning routine for you? An end of the day routine? Like I find that by end of the day, mentally I, I'm done. I can't take that shit. I got to be way lighter with anything <laughs> I'm doing, but what is it for you? In terms of like that, just like in terms of like filming the video or just like in terms no, of in terms of, of the research, you know, get being able to prepare yourself to be, to sit in front of that vi do um, the video. Well, I think like it's for me, like I have my own system down now where like, so like throughout the week, I'm kind of like curating content on Twitter, right? Like I'm tweeting a lot, looking at the Canadian stats or, you know, reading a lot of Bloomberg and, and stuff like that. So you're kind of like curating that stuff already in my Twitter feed. Yep. And then, you know, I'll film my weekly video on Friday and I'll kind of like look and say, okay, like, what did I tweet this week? Like what was happening in the world that was like interesting? Like, you know, was there a clip this week of the Bank of Canada's, you know, Tiff Macklin coming out and talking about his view on interest rates for the next three years? Like, oh, okay, that was interesting. Let's, let's take a two minute clip of his speech and let's, let's talk about, you know, what I think this means uh, to people. And, and so I think, yeah, I'm basically just curating throughout the week and then, you know, sitting down on a Friday for, for 20 minutes and recording that. And then, you know, I flip it off to my video editor and he takes care of it. I think it's great that you're doing it. Like I say, there's not enough Canadians doing it. And, and so I, I think it's great. Who are you following on YouTube these days? I actually don't watch much YouTube. No, no, you're not listening to other guys. What's going on in the U.S. I, I, I follow oh. guys economically on YouTube. Oh yeah. No, I, I listen to a ton of podcasts. Yeah. Um, okay uh macro voices is my favorite mm -hmm. that's a u.s based but again they're bringing on like i think their last episode they had david rosenberg who's you know canadian guy yeah well big respected economist uh macro voices i watch a lot of real vision which mm -hmm. is um a finance platform subscription based only yeah where again these guys are sitting down like every day there's a new video and they're interviewing some of the smartest like money managers like ever yeah. And so you can sit there and watch like, you know, an industry Titan for an hour, just kind of spew his thoughts on like the world and markets and politics. And you're like, wow, like this is obviously somebody that like, isn't just pontificating. Like they had to make investment decisions around, you know, billion dollar investment decisions around like their thoughts and, and their, their knowledge. So just to kind of like, you know, sit in a room and just kind of be a spectator of that, I think is, is like super fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, it, it's interesting. You brought up Ray Dalio earlier. He's a cool cat. I mean, he's, he's, he's a pretty smart dude, obviously. And, but I've noticed that he's been, all these guys have been far more public, I guess is what I want to say. They've been more, you know, more accessible, been a more vocal about what's going on. Uh, just to comment about your YouTube, uh, Steve, as well, is that I think you're sometimes a little bit too diplomatic. I think you can, just get in there. <laughs> I think, yeah, I know. I think you, you walk the line, which we sometimes all have to do. But Well, you know what the thing is? It's funny because like I, you know, like, especially like being like a realtor in real estate, right? It's like 
I just, I always have to laugh because I'll never forget. I had a, uh, I had a listing in Shaughnessy like a couple years ago, a year and a half ago, maybe. And, you know, a $5 million house for sale. And so like, obviously the people that are coming through that tend to skew a little bit more right wing, right? Like you tend to be business owner or something and, and you've made a lot of money. Uh, you know, you're more of a free market guy. And so I'll never forget. Cause when I had that listing, I think it was at the same time they had brought in like the BC government had brought in the speculation tax. Mm-hmm. And so everybody that walked through that was like, can you believe this? You know, this is such BS and just going off basically about all the taxes that were being brought in to kill the real estate market. And then I would go, you know, later that day and show a condo to a first time home buyer for $500,000. And they're like, isn't this great? The government's going to make housing more affordable. <laughs> and so, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's too funny to sort of see the different views. political views and landscapes. And so it's yeah. like, as a realtor, I always kind of have to watch like what I say, cause I'm not, you know, like, okay, does, does this client skew to the left or do they skew to the right? Like, Yes, those are those are the challenges that we face. There's no doubt about it. And uh, yeah, I can see that. But anyways, that's just my point of view. I think that you could go a little bit. I think it's, I mean, I definitely have some definitely have some thoughts. And I try to elicit some of that yeah, a little yeah, yeah. bit more on, on Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, you'd be a little more vocal on Twitter. For sure. Uh, I've become a just, you know, because listeners sometimes like to hear what we listen to. And, you know, I like to I'm a big fan of uh, George Gammon. I mean, that guy is just killing. Mm-hmm. He's so good. He's so good. I, I just got into him like a little bit more recently. I've only watched like one or two videos just because like, I actually had a client that sent me his info. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's built a pretty nice. Yeah, following. he's done. He's done a great job of uh, building the following. And you go i've been watching him now since gosh i want to say april and i don't miss too much of his stuff but he breaks he breaks kind of the whole monetary policy federal government you know central banks you know kind of segments all of that um he is only recently getting into the conversation about you know the great reset what does that mean to us you know he talks a lot about digital you know the the future of or potential of uh, digital currencies. He's a big real estate guy, by the way. And so he's got a great train of thought, but he does, he's a great educator, like very, very good. One, I, I think one of the best I've ever, I've ever heard. Yeah. He's awesome. But you know, what's interesting is just do like, um, do like a fun little exercise and go around and like, maybe not in like your rain sphere. Cause they're obviously yeah. probably a little bit more educated and, yeah. and they're listening and stuff, but like just go on the streets or ask like, you know, next family dinner or something like, Oh dude, ask, <laughs> ask somebody what, like what the role of this, what, what, ask somebody what a central bank does and, or, you know, how, how money is created. And I guarantee you 99 percent of them will have not a clue what you're talking about yeah but again it's like the biggest components like literally like whether you you know whether you like it or not like money is a in, like one of the most critical aspects of our lives like that's what drives your everything mm-hmm. your ability like why you can't you know afford a house in vancouver or why it is again groceries are going up five six seven percent a year or mm-hmm. something like it, it but like nobody actually understands how it's how it's done or the game and then i think that so only only i don't want to go down another rabbit hole but uh what's your thoughts fiat currency i think that i mean again again as i talked about the beginning of the show like m2 money supply is up 15 percent this year that's unprecedented i think that 
they have to keep the game going. So they have to do more. Like once you, once you do QE quantitative easing, AKA money printing, like you can't stop. Like, and so everybody like, every, like it's funny cause everyone goes, Oh, you know, real estate's going to crash, you know, like once, once interest rates go up, but what they don't understand is like, like quite literally interest rates cannot, cannot go, go up. up. Yep. Um, so I don't know what that means. Eventually what it means is there's going to be some sort of reset. There'll be some sort of new monetary system. And this is not conspiracy theory because no. literally the IMF international monetary fund is literally calling right now. They're calling this our Bretton Woods moment, basically our time to sort of redesign global payment systems. You're talking about, you know, central bank, digital currency. So this is all happening. It's if happening. You actually, like the, like literally like the bank of Canada wrote a paper on the great reset, like yep. five months ago. Yeah. Um, and they're, and they're all talking about, they're all writing their own papers right now in digital currencies. So it's all happening because they think they have to sort of figure out some sort of system. I think right now they're obviously talking about inflation averaging. So the central banks are desperate to create inflation, um, whether or not they get it or if, whether or not they record it officially through CPI, which is kind of a bogus metric to begin with. They have to try to inflate away the debt. So that's why I do think like, I do think real assets like real estate will do well. Yep. Hard assets. Do you own some Bitcoin? I do. Yeah. Do you own some gold, silver? Uh, not physically. Not physical. No. Um, Bitcoin's crazy, right? Like Bitcoin, what are they? Uh, I don't know, 23, 24 grand Canadian today, I think was what I yeah, said. Yeah, but I think that's, the, I mean, funny thing about Bitcoin is people are like, oh, it's like, you know, I still get a lot of people like, oh, it's a scam. It's a Ponzi. And it's like, yeah. I actually had that view in, you know, when it was kind of taking off to, to you know, and before it crashed, like I was, I was like, well, this is like the dumbest thing ever. And, <laughs> yeah. but then I started doing like, again, yeah, I just did my you own research. Got research and it's not an easy subject to learn about. You got to really yeah. work hard at it. So started asking questions. And a lot of people that I respected, like in the finance space, you know, kept kind of pounding the table. And so it was about a year, just over a year ago, I started uh, accumulating. Yep. And again, you know, I think it's, it's maybe, maybe it does go to zero. Yep. Maybe it goes to, you know, a hundred thousand yep. or more. Yeah. Uh, I think both are <laughs> possible, you know, both are possibilities. <laughs> well, but you know, and, I think, I think the upside outweighs the downside. So a hundred percent UDI, you know, people don't understand that that's really the direction that things are going to end up going. I believe. I, I think we'll start to see, I think that will come to fruition. We'll see how that goes. You know, it's interesting about, uh, you know, people don't get negative interest rates and, and, and that's where I think it will go, especially, you know, because people, they're not going to want to keep money. They can't keep money in the bank right now. I think it was you that was talking about it. Somebody was talking about it. I mean, it, lots of guys talk about uh, how much, uh, savings, uh, you know, Canadians have and just the overall market cash sitting in the banks, but the government doesn't want that money sitting in the bank. They got to get it out into circulation, and people don't understand is that is actually an intentional move to get money circulating. Because if you got a, you know, whatever the number is in the bank, whether it's you know ten thousand, a hundred thousand, or ten million sitting in the bank does not work. Because and that's part of your central bank digital currency of the ability to sort of more manipulate behaviors to to get them spending. Right, you can do direct injections of of cash into, into people's accounts or you can apply, you know, if you have a central bank digital currency and you say, well, there's no cash, then it's pretty easy to apply a negative 5% interest rate on your savings. Totally. <laughs> right. And watch and, it go away. <laughs> and again, not conspiracy theory, Ken Rogoff, uh, very well-respected economist, wrote a lot of papers uh, suggesting that 
back during the 2008-2009 financial crisis, they should have taken rates to negative 5%. And that, that is still having a, it's still an ongoing dialogue amongst like the central banking community. Yeah. And it's, it is an ongoing, it, so that you, you know, to your point, it isn't, it isn't conspiracy theory. These, these conversations are being had, you know, and, and it's not difficult to find it. You won't find it in mainstream media because it's, it's way above, you know, it's, it's beyond kind of the conversation that most people can have to your point you sit around a kitchen table or a dining room table and it's you know 99.5 percent of the people have no idea really what's going on in that regard so it is an interesting conversation and then again i always look at that and say i just feel bad for people because like you know again your average person goes well like how come why can't i afford a house like how come i can't afford even a condo in vancouver like well woe is me and I get it, but like you have to look at it and say, well, like, yeah, this is all function of that by the central banks, like basically manipulating interest rates or, you know, engaging in quantitative easing to essentially lower yields. So like, I, you know, I have to laugh, like, you know, what's the, uh, what's the yield on a, on a five-year Canada government bond? It's like, I think it's, what is it? 60 basis points. Something, yeah. <laughs> So it's like you're gonna hold, you're gonna hold a five-year government bond to maturity, and they're gonna give you sixty basis points when inflation is arguably, let's just call, you know, one and a half, two percent. But it realistically, it's probably higher, especially for someone in Ottawa, where prices are up, house prices are up twenty-two percent. So it's yeah. like you're gonna hold that for for sixty basis points, or like you know, you go to Europe, like uh, you know, a Greek sovereign bond. I think like. I think I think a ten year Greek bond is like it's like negative twenty basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, how does that make many, any sense? How many yeah. times have they defaulted? And so like that's the thing is like when you when you eliminate the bond market, which is like a, probably it's the largest asset class. When you eliminate yields on that, and you have negative yields across the curve, it's like of course stocks are hitting all time highs. Of course, real estate is incredibly expensive. Of course, bitcoins. You know, going back to, you know, I mean, it crashed today, but, you know, 16, <laughs> US dollars, like, of course, gold's going up. It's like, because there's nowhere for the money to go. It's got to go somewhere. And it's, it's, you know, it does. It has to go somewhere. Um, Steve, I could talk about this stuff for a long time, but you got to go. I know I've taken a lot of your time already and I appreciate the time and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you more. As we wind the show down, I just like to ask some what we call rapid fire questions, Steve. Sure. And they're, they're generally not that rapid fire, but I think you're sharp. You're going to do it. iPhone or Android? Oh, iPhone, big time. Oh, are you kidding me? Okay, fine. <laughs> that way. <laughs> favorite book? You read a lot. Do you have a favorite? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I, I enjoy, I still think like the most influential is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. Um, that's a common one. I think I would say that that's probably, it was, it was the turning point for me. I, well, actually I want to say that I, I want to say, uh, the wealthy barber I think was, was literally the book that I read just before I read, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, uh, we've had David Chilton on our stage before and I, it was really interesting to go back into that time. It was many, many years ago now, but. Uh, yeah, so Rich Dad is uh, is very very popular. So I would say yeah, it's probably then, the number uh, one. I think the other, the other one I'll add to that is uh, a book called Purple Cow by Seth Godin. Good one, good and, one. Uh, the premise of that one is basically everybody's seen a white cow and a brown cow and a black cow, but nobody's ever seen a purple cow. So he basically just tells you to stand out. Yeah, you love Seth Godin. Um, have you read Tribes? I have, yeah. Good. Oh, actually, no. Another one good by good by him is a linchpin. 
Yeah, I mean, he, Seth just writes good books at the yeah, end of the yeah. day. You, know, you, can't, you can't lose. Just, you can't just lose. Go, go read Seth. <laughs> it's true. Do you have a favorite swear word? Uh, I mean, it's fuck for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm an F-bomber <laughs> too. I'm mostly an F-bomber. Favorite inspirational quote? Uh, life happens for us, not to us. Love that quote. As a matter of fact, uh, I've been more and more reminding myself of that quote, uh, given what's going on. Now, we talked about it earlier. If you weren't a realtor, what do you think you'd try and do? So a business of some sorts. Still 100%. be a business owner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 100%. I always, I've always, like, I've always been interested in, like, the, the digital e-commerce space. Yeah. Like, I think that I would probably venture into that space. What are you just not very good at? Cold calling. Cold calling. Oh, you brought that <laughs> I mean, up that's why I don't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm... Uh, as, as weird as it might be, I feel like I'm somewhat uh, introverted. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, like I'm, even though I'm out there, like on YouTube and sure. Twitter and stuff, like yeah. I don't, I don't like to go to like parties and like dinner meetings and have to meet like a whole small bunch of talk, small yeah, talk. I can't do that. <laughs> can't, can't do, do that, that small talk thing. I get it. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? You're a good man. <laughs> no doubt about that. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Uh, probably my car. Favorite tune? Oof. Got one? Uh, I don't know if I have one, to be honest. I mean, I used to be a big Eminem guy growing up, but yeah. I don't know. Not anymore. Do you have a favorite movie? Uh, I, I probably got a couple in there. Happy Gilmore, I loved. <laughs> of course. You're a hockey Miracle. player. <laughs> uh I, don't know, I always liked like Gladiator. Gladiator sure. was awesome. That was good. And what are you grateful for today? I, I mean, I don't know. Fa family and health. Health, I would say. Just yeah. everybody's, everybody's healthy and yeah, haven't had any. I mean, yeah, even like throughout this whole pandemic, I think it was just kind of like, well, you know, when you're locked down, at least if you're locked down with you know people you love, it's it's not the end of the world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm grateful. Uh, yeah, I'm grateful for my guests. Always, always grateful that uh, you took the time today to join us on the show. And I think there's lots of lots of stuff in there for people to take away and gain some understanding from. And uh, like you, I'm grateful for my family and uh, grateful that we, in spite of all what we believe about our politicians and our politics, I'm very grateful to be in Canada. So, absolutely. Today. Steve Sretsky, thank you so much for your time, for your insights, and the knowledge you shared today. It's very, very appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.